Good morning, Portico. How are we doing? Oh, a little cold out today, isn't it? Uh, some of you woke up today and you went, oh, Portico Online. I love that idea. Yeah, well, good to have you here. It's a great, great day. It is Valentine's Day, you know, so there's a remedy here. If you're a little cold, you could always move a little bit closer to your neighbor and, uh, you know, just kind of snuggle up, make sure it's, you know, an appropriate snuggle here. That's all I'm going to ask for. And man, if you forgot it was Valentine's Day, this would be a great time to put your arm around your wife, your girlfriend, and just pretend you remembered. Warm up that way. All right, well, it's good to have you here. We're going to jump right in. Ushers, could you help us this morning? If you're online, welcome to Portico. Great to have you in the chapel over in our video cafe. We're going to hand out our Bibles. If you need to borrow one, raise your hand real high. And we're going to get a Bible to you so you can follow along as we go through. And if you keep your hands up, our ushers are great. They're going to get that in your hands. You can leave it there in the chair before you leave this morning. Take your electronic devices or your Bibles. You can go to the electronic device, take notes, pull them out of the bulletin, and it's a great way to track with us. The series that we're in is called Tough Questions. We're interrogating the Christian faith. So we're looking at the hurdles, the big questions that people raise when it comes to you know, whether they want to believe in the Christian faith or whether they just have these objections and they go, you know, I just can't even buy in. I just can't buy in with what you guys believe because of these issues. So over the last number of weeks, and I do hope you've been tracking with us, and if not, please go to the website or go to our app, follow along. Great messages our communicators have been presenting on the series. And today, I want to dive into one, and you've seen the title, it's there in your bulletin. It's this question, why is God so angry? You know, that's a, an interesting question. We often don't pose that when we come to church here. But for a lot of people that are considering the, question, uh, the Christian faith, this question often comes sometimes in a veiled form, sometimes in a very direct form. So I'm going to try to explore this a little bit together today, and we're going to see if we can get through that. And uh, we're also going to take, tackle a, a few of the key questions that are associated maybe with this one question. So it all starts this way. And I think that's maybe the best way for me to take you through this. If you can relate to my experience, I remember the very first time that I decided I was going to try to read through the entire Bible. How many of you can remember this? I, I decided, you know, if you're going to read the Bible, you better read the whole book. That's a good thing to do. So not being skilled or knowledgeable in what the Bible represented, understanding that it was a book, you do what everybody does. You start at the beginning. So you open up to the book of... Good. Interactive church. I love it. You open up to the book of Genesis. Because everybody knows you go to the first book. It's where the plot is. It's where the characters are. It's where the theme gets mapped out. It's the murder mystery. Everything unpacks in the first book. And you start reading through the book of Genesis. And how many of you find when you start getting into Genesis, you go, whoa, these people are really messed up. Like you're reading and you're going, this family's broken. These people are dysfunctional. These people need to go for counseling. What? Why would God do that? So by the time you get to the end of of Genesis, you follow the Israelites, you cross the Red Sea, you make your way into Exodus, then it gets really weird. And you do what everybody does. You do what the Israelites did. You exit. You just, you leave. Because reading the Old Testament, it's not for the faint of heart. It's like, whoa, that's heavy stuff, isn't it? Is it just my reading or is it yours? Yeah, we read that way. So then you you know, because we're all trained this way, we're, we went to school, went to our you know literature classes, English classes, you decide, I'm going to try it again. And you skim over the first parts that you read, and you get to the book of Leviticus, and you go, who wrote this stuff? 
this cannot possibly be for me. So you just, you leave that entirely and go, you know, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the New Testament. Because somebody told us there's two Testaments, and so we quickly turn over and we get to the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we love them. We do. Jesus is kissing babies, hugging babies. He's feeding people. He's healing people. He's forgiving sin. He's an incredible guy. In fact, he's telling everybody, just love everybody. Love your enemies. And there's this unbelievable discrepancy between this God of the Old Testament and this God of the New Testament. Because when you think about the Jesus story, you go back, man, back there, there was a flood and eight people lived and everybody else died and two people were burned up when they offered the wrong incense and one guy was out getting firewood on the Sabbath and poof, they stoned him. And what's the reconciliation of all of these stories? So somebody, if you're like me, you're reading and all of a sudden you're you're starting to go, why is this stuff so out of sync? Like why does there just seem to be this misconnection between these two worlds? With Jesus, you got this love and compassion and forgiveness and then you go back to the Old Testament and it seems like God is still on top of the mountain and there's fire and smoke and wrath and anger. Well, there's the objection. There's the objection. When skeptics and seekers and cynics and, well, even some believers, let's put us all in the same boat for a little while. When we get into this part of our reading, a lot of people just take God as portrayed in the Old Testament and they put him on a shelf and they leave him there and they go, I can't figure that one out, but I like this one over here. And so I'm going to hang out with this one. And for skeptics, they go, it's incongruous for us to embrace faith if you as followers of Jesus want us to believe that this God of the Old Testament is the same as this God of the New Testament. So these questions are there, and they just sort of rest behind us, and we often don't deal with them, so I'm going to try to tackle some of them, but questions you know, such as, why is God so angry in the Old Testament? And if God is, in fact, one God all the way through the Bible, why does there seem to be a difference? And then another one that, well, we just have to deal with it. Where did, where did hell come from? And what's with that story? So today, and I've, I've done this a couple of times, and I want to reiterate it today. In the next four and a half hours, I'm going to do my best to help you. But if that's not enough, no, today I'm going to do my best to help answer some of the questions. But I always urge you, what we study today is never enough. You need to go deeper on the topics to truly understand its depth and scope and magnitude because there's so much that God has to teach us. So if you're not part of a growth group, come out on Wednesday night. We have a large growth group experience here at the church. Everybody's welcome. You can just come on down. We're going to dive in. We've got Tim Keller's material. We're going to study it. You're going to get a chance to ask questions and interact with it. Our, our home growth groups, if you're in those, you know they've been a magnificent. If you haven't been in one yet, go to the information center. We'll get you signed up and get you on your journey. If you're a reader and you like reading and you want to do a little bit of a deeper dive, got your pen out. Let me just give you a couple of resources. So one is a book. It's called Surprised by Hope. It's an excellent book. N.T. Wright, great scholar, theologian. And the other that I would recommend for you is written by Sean McDowell and Jonathan Morrow, and it's called Is God Just a Human Invention? And it's, again, another treatise in terms of dealing with some of the objections of the Christian faith. And so two resources, I'm happy to provide those if you need references to those later. But in order to really get to the depth of what we're speaking about, I would encourage you specifically on the growth groups, because you get to interact around tables, we'll grow together 
and we're all good to go forward. Everybody good? All right, well, let's just go to growth groups, and I'm going to go home. Nah, just kidding. All right, so here's what I want you to do. Get your notes out, because I do want you to take a few notes this morning. Get your electronic devices out as well. So let me tackle some of these questions and see if we can make sense of them. Here's the first one. So why does the God of the Old Testament seem to be so angry? I, I like... I think our artists, our comic strip artists, sometimes capture what we don't want to say. They can do it in public and say what we'd like to say. It's the Doonesbury comic clip where the character quips this and says, whenever you read from the Old Testament, God is always crabby and snarky to everyone. Now, we would never say that. I would never say that. I would want to back up for fear of judgment. But there's a sense where collective humanity goes, I get that. Because when I read, I do pick up these poignant little pieces in the Old Testament where God appears to come across this way. In fact, in your notes, I put it in your notes, we'll put it on the screen, Deuteronomy 32-35. This is where God speaks, and God says, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. Now, what kind of image does that give you? It's like, whoa, don't cross the big guy. Because if you do, it's his. Further, Moses in Deuteronomy 4.24 would write this about the Lord. He would say, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. He is a jealous God. The psalmist David would write this. He would say, God, you hate all who do wrong. Those are strong words. Those assertions and expressions of God's character come through over and over and over. And so here's where skeptics will sometimes assert that God is portrayed in the Old Testament as a cruel, ruthless deity that indiscriminately orders the execution of seemingly innocent people. And because of this, they also then say, this God no way represents the God that is depicted in the New Testament. So if the God over here in the New Testament is such a loving, careful creator, and the God in the Old Testament is is this angry, ruthless deity, these two are juxtaposed against each other, then how can you ask us to sincerely buy in and believe what you believe about this God? So for evidence and backing, they'll raise a number of points, but I just want to share some of the thoughts that come out of the world here. Atheist Richard Dawkins writes this about the God of the Old Testament. He says the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. He's jealous and proud of it. He's petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak. He's vindictive, bloodthirsty. He's a bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. He's a bully. Whoa, that's pretty strong. There's a sentiment that's echoed by atheist Charles Templeton when he said this, the God of the Old Testament is utterly unlike the God believed in by most practicing Christians. So atheists and skeptics go, everything we say about God doesn't match the reality of how they interpret God, particularly when they look at the Old Testament. So you go, well, what's the basis of the objection? Where do they find this? Well, front and center. They talk about the flood. You go, look at this apocalyptic flood. God looks at the world and he goes, I'm done with it. And he sends a flood. Eight people rescued. Everything else, all other living creatures wiped out. They go, what kind of God is that? That's not a New Testament God. Then they move across and they go, well, think, if that's not enough for you, what about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the ancient Near East Las Vegas? God says, I don't like what's happening there, so I'm going to wipe them out. So what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I'll take care of that, no problem. And they go, look what God does with this place. Then they move forward and they go, well, what about the genocide? And you go, genocide? Oh, yeah, the genocide. When God says to Israel, hey, you're my beloved. 
I'm going to give you a promised land. Oh, by the way, let's kill everybody and then take over their place. I don't think that's how you move into a neighborhood anymore, do you? <laughs> this is what God's telling them to do. And then you have the overthrow of Jericho. So skeptics go, this is just contrary to everything we believe. Now, at first appearance, you go, wow. Some believers are even going, wow, right now. They're going, no, maybe there's a good point here. Is God really different and always angry? Now, here's what I would say, and if you're taking notes, this is critical. This is pivotal to our understanding. Context to any story is absolutely essential to accurate interpretation. You need to know the full context in order to have the story. And if you miss the context, you're going to miss the greater parts of this. So let me give you a couple little snapshots of context before we make our decision on what God is like in the Old Testament. So let's go back to the flood for a moment because that's one of the big ones. Everybody raises it right away and they go, you believe in the God of the Bible? Talk about the flood. So when you look at the flood, everybody goes, why would God do that? You say mercy, I see wrath. You say love, I see vengeance. Why would God do that? Well, if you read the full context of the story, go back to Genesis chapter 6. God spells it out very clearly. He speaks to Noah personally. And he goes, Noah, I am grieved, not angry. He goes, I am so grieved. My creation, I created it. It was good. I blessed it. But the description that the Bible gives, and God says to Noah, he goes, wickedness and evil has touched everything and everyone to the point of its utter destruction. Everybody is bent on evil. And only Noah and his family were demonstrating expressions of righteousness. So God tells Noah, this is what I'm going to do. I am so grieved, I'm going to try to redo this. So I'm going to try to restore my creation. I'm going to try to rebirth all of this and see if we can't get this right again. So people go, well, that's out of his anger. No, no, not his anger. He said to Noah, I want you to build an ark. And we all know the story. Noah said, I don't know what an ark is. God says, a boat. I don't know what a boat is. I'll tell you. So he starts to build this ark. Now, somewhere in our minds, we have this idea that he ran down, you know, to the local sporting goods store and picked up a boat and threw everybody on the boat and took off. Do you know how long it took to build the ark? Almost 100 years. Most scholars figure it was about 100 years for him to build the ark. Peter, in fact, writes about Noah. He said during the entire time that he's building the ark, Peter would refer to Noah as a preacher of righteousness. Why did Peter say that? Because every day that Noah's out there cutting down trees and building an ark, people are going by, Noah, what are you doing? Well, I'm building an ark. Why are you building an ark? Because God is tired of the way this world is. He's grieved over the evil there. Well, what's the ark going to do? Well, God says that anybody who chooses his way, he's going to save them. For 100 years, he shares hope with people. And yet through the entire span, not one person changes their way. They mock Noah. They reject Noah. They ignore Noah. Until the rain comes, then everybody's a believer. You ever notice that? Suddenly everybody's a believer. But God was patient and long-suffering. And so when you raise the question of the flood, don't raise the question of anger. Man, raise the question of compassion and patience and love for a God who saw all that was good and says, I will restore and I will give opportunity for people to change. Well then, what about Sodom and Gomorrah? 
Because over in Genesis chapter 19, we have a clear indication where God seems to arbitrarily find two cities and he goes, don't like what's happening there. How about we just torch them? So he's going to call down fire on them. So again, in Genesis chapter 19, what I want you to do, if you could, is uh, later on, not today, but later on, go back to Genesis chapter 13. Read the context. So in Genesis chapter 13, you have a little bit of a story For those of you who are familiar with the Bible, and some of you are brand new, and that's great. Welcome to the journey, and I'll fill in the gaps a little bit for you. But back in Genesis chapter 13, when Abraham made his way towards this new land that God was leading him to, his nephew Lot came with him. They grew too big to be together because they were raising sheep and agriculture, and so they had to separate and go their ways, and Lot chose the region of Sodom. In that era, era, what you read about Lot at that time in Sodom and Gomorrah is that God blessed that land. It was green, it was bountiful, the harvests were great, lush. So Lot selected land where the favor and blessing of God was both on the righteous and the unrighteous. So God wasn't unjust in this moment. Rather, it was a wonderful place to be. But as time went on, we read the account of when tribal kings, rival kings came in, took those in the region of Sodom captive, carried them away. Word gets back to Abraham, and what does God do to Abraham? Hey, Abraham, go rescue Lot. Go rescue those people and save them. So Abraham musters his forces. He goes out, rescues all the people, brings them back. When they're coming back from their warfare, God was favorable to Abraham, right? They're coming back from their warfare, Abraham would meet a king and a high priest by the name of, anybody know? Melchizedek. Yeah, good for you. Melchizedek said he was the king of Salem, the high priest of God. Everybody knew this guy. So Abraham immediately worships God by giving a tithe of his plunder. But this is the part I want you to notice. Not only did Melchizedek meet Abraham, it said he met the king of Sodom. So the leading representatives of the city of Sodom, long before their destruction, had an encounter with the presence and the provision of God. This wasn't like these people had no awareness, and this was suddenly a stark surprise one day. Genesis 13 all the way up to Genesis 19, God has been dealing in the background with a group of people. So you go, yeah, but uh, come on. So on the day that he finally decides to wipe them out, he just like sends raining fire and sulfur and takes them away. No. God makes his way. And the Bible says that he stops by one day because he loves to drop in for dinner. And he dropped by Abraham. And he said, hey, Abraham. And Abraham said, hey, what are you up to? Hey, well, funny you should ask. Thought I'd destroy two cities today. Didn't go like that. That's my interpretation in case you're actually taking this literally right now. He said, so here's what my plans are. God wasn't going to reveal it first, but he said, how can I keep this from my friend? And he said, well, here's what my plans are. And Abraham goes, oh, no. Now watch carefully. He said, God, if there are at least 50 righteous people, would you spare the city? So he starts to negotiate. Anybody ever negotiate with God? Come on, be honest. We do it. He says, if there's 50 righteous people, God, would you spare the city? And God's like, okay. Okay. For 50, I'll spare the city. Abraham goes, all right, we're on a roll. Let's try again. God, for 40, I think I would have stopped at 50. 
But then he starts to he starts to negotiate. He whittles the number down. He gets it to the point where he's got God at the place of going. If there is ten righteous people, I'll spare the city. And God goes, because you're my friend, for the sake of ten righteous people, I'll spare the city. Friends, the story is there wasn't even ten righteous people there. God rescues Lot and his family. They are the only ones who are righteous. So when the objections are raised, how could God be so angry and do this? It's not out of his anger. God has already revealed himself in his love and his patience and his kindness over and over and over. And he looked at the nature of what was taking place and he goes, they are evil. They are destroying everything around them. And if I don't care for this, it will destroy all of creation again. So you see the patience of God. Then you fast forward again real quickly and you think about the city of Jericho. And people ask, well, what's with Jericho? And why did God plan such a a destruction, such a complete and utter destruction of the city? So when you think of the Canaanites, and again, I'll just give you a little touch here. But when you think of the Canaanites, you have to understand who they were. The biblical records of these people, they were incredibly sinful people who practiced Cruelty, incest, idolatry, bestiality, cultic prostitution, child sacrifice. They threw their own children into the fire to worship and appease their gods. And God's heart was grieved and tormented. He said, Israel, if you follow their ways, they're going to destroy everything. What was God's plan? God wasn't simply preserving Israel so that they could be their own. God was raising Israel up to be what? A light to the nations of the world. He was bringing hope to his world. So God within his providence brings judgment, but we within our humanity shout in our indignation, he's just an angry, cruel, vengeful God. No, friends, he's not. Every instance, every instance you read of this God His actions are loving and righteous, never vindictive, never spiteful, never malicious. Far from the accusations of those who see him and sneer at him, God is always revealed as a righteous, patient, merciful God. You'll read it over and over in the the Old Testament. You'll read words like this, But you, O Lord, are compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. In fact, I think one of the most touching moments is when God reveals his name to Moses. Now, when God first introduces himself in Scripture to Moses, he just said to Moses, I am who I am. Moses said, who would I tell Israel? You are. He goes, just tell him I am who I am. Moses goes, good enough for me. I think that's a fair response. But as he gets to know God personally, the first personal name we get to know is this name Yahweh, which we translate into the word the Lord, capital letters, L-O-R-D, capital And there's a name. It means something. Now, those of you that are watching us online, if you joined us in by way of venues and everything, our worship leader, Pastor Dwayne, just said, "Uh, you know what? Forget your name. You know, forget your name that your parents gave you. So that was a lot of fun in the room. I said, I'm no longer Doug. But names in the Bible have a meaning. So I can't forget these names. And if you look carefully, names are always tied to a bigger story. They tell something about the person. So when Moses is about to discover God's name, and God reveals it to him, it's worth paying attention to. Here it is in your notes. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. So God passes by in front of Moses, and God says to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, 
slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So God says, Moses, if you want to know who I am, I am the God who is patient to the ends of the earth. I am filled with long-suffering. I am filled with love for you. And my wrath does not flow out of vindictiveness. But I do punish the guilty. So when critics claim or ask or wonder about the nature of God and his anger in the Old Testament, it's clearly misdirected because they only see a small snapshot. Well, let's go to a second question then. In your notes, I posed it this way. So why does God's character, why does God's character then seem to change between the Old Testament and then into the New Testament? If you deal with the anger, that's fine. But is there a character change? It's another way of expressing the same basic thought as when people say this, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. Now, how do we see this played out? Do you remember, those of you that are, you've read the Bible, you've followed some of the stories for a little while, remember the incident when the disciples came to Jesus, his followers, and they noticed he was so different. And they said, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? And he goes, oh, sure, I'll do that. So remember the context. Context is always so important. So they're living in first century Israel. They're used to seeing the temple. They can smell the aroma of the burnt offerings. They smell the incense. They hear the songs. They're understanding what worship is and prayers. They participated in going to the temple to pray. But Jesus was different. They said, could you teach us how to pray? And he goes, sure. When you pray, say, oh, you read ahead. You read my notes. Luke 11, verse 2. When you pray, what do you say? Father, our Father, Abba, hallowed be your name. These guys be going, whoa, just a minute. We can't say dad. We've never said dad. That's not how we pray here. Jesus says, no, you wanted to know. He said, when you pray to the Father, just say, Abba, Dad, our Father. So their minds were wrestling to get around what this new concept is. And you have to ask yourself, what happened? They must have been asking themselves, what's going on here? Because remember, the voice of God went silent 400 years earlier with the prophets. So for 400 years, they hadn't heard God speak. That's called the 400 silent years. So in those 400 years, what do you think took place? Maybe God went on an anger management course. So he took a little time out, and he just got some training so that when he was dealing with his people, you know, we kind of laugh about that, but how many of you are parents, and you know, sometimes it's good when you're trying to discipline your kids that you actually just step back from the whole story? Anybody? Okay, good. I just want to make sure I wasn't the only one. Because you get so emotionally engaged in the moment, you go, ah, you frustrate me. So you could almost assume that in the 400 years, maybe God just like stepped back, took a time out. And yet Jesus introduces God in a very clear way. And here's what we notice as you read and study the Bible, it becomes clear that God is, is the same in the Old as he is in the New Testament. John 14, 9. Even Philip would ask Jesus about the Father. So look at this. Jesus answered Philip. He said, don't you, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father 
How can you say, show us the Father? So he's connecting all the dots for them. 66 books written over multiple continents, three different languages, over 1,500 years, and yet the Bible with the 40 different authors remains as one single unified book, never contradicting itself and presenting God in this wonderful sense of completeness. He is God in Genesis all the way to Revelation. He is a God who is constant and does not change. By his very nature, he is immutable, which means merely that he is unchanging. And while we might see one aspect of his nature revealed in one context, we have to look at the full scope so we understand it in the true context. See, here's what I know to be true. If somebody looked at me at different points of my life, they may misjudge my character So if they saw me in a moment when I was, say, disciplining my son, they might go, oh, he's always that intense, or he's always that sober, or he's always that serious. Whereas if they saw me when I was first trying to win Laura over into my life, they go, oh, that's a whole different guy. Who is that guy? Are you following me so far? We're like this. Our, Our character reflects differences depending on the context in the moment. You do this when you're driving your car in rush hour traffic and somebody cuts you off. If we judged your character based on that moment of your life, we would think that you're the most wonderful person we've ever met. So if you mistakenly take a snapshot of an individual, which is what people tend to do when it comes to God. So when you look at God in the big picture, you begin to realize, whoa, God didn't change. God didn't change we got very selective about how we wanted to look at God rather than looking at the completeness of God. So John chapter 1, verse 14, I love how John frames it. He said, The Word became flesh. He made His dwelling among us. We have seen the glory of the one and only, His Son, who came from the Father. What does it say? Full of grace, full of truth. Same truth that God says, I will not let evil and unrighteousness prevail. And the same grace that says, and I will send my son and he will rescue people from their sins. I love God. So you see this complete harmony even in the midst of all the questions. Well, we have one last question that I want to tackle this morning. So if God isn't angry and he is the same all the way through scripture, there's one question that critics, skeptics, seekers, and even believers ask. And it's this question that casts a long shadow and raises some serious doubts. Why would a loving God send people to hell? It's there. It's the question nobody likes to talk about. In our 21st century sophistication, the very idea of hell becomes increasingly remote and difficult to reconcile. We'll talk about heaven. We want everybody to go there. When we get cut off in traffic, we send people to the other direction. But surveys consistently report that the majority of people believe in heaven where far less are inclined to believe that hell is real, let alone that hell exists. It was Pope Benedict in a message that he preached a number of years ago that made this declaration, hell really exists and it is eternal, even if nobody talks about it anymore. That was such a spectacular statement that it captured headline news and it went global The very idea of hell raises serious questions, not the least of which for many people is, why would a loving God? All right, you got the angry God out. But why would this loving God send people to hell? 
C.S. Lewis writes this in his work. He said, There is no other doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than the doctrine of hell. If it would lay in my power, I would pay any price to be able to say truthfully that all will be saved. So Lewis articulates what many know to be true, that as difficult as it was for him to make the statement about hell, it did not change the truth that hell is real. And the Bible speaks very openly and very unapologetically about hell. Now, we don't. In fact, we try to avoid it. We want to be loved and accepted, and everybody just belongs. And let's keep it easy. Did you know that Jesus, think about this, did you know that Jesus taught more about hell than all biblical authors combined? Combined. Jesus the one full of grace and truth. More than half of his uh, parables all touched on the aspects of hell. This was such a serious topic for him. And Jesus would speak about hell more often and in more vivid, gruesome tones than anybody else would. It's not the way we think of him, but he did. Think about this. Jesus spoke of eternal fire and punishment as the place of final abode for the angels and humans who have rejected God. Jesus said that those who sin and who give in to sin will be in the danger of the fire of hell. Jesus described hell very vividly. He said it's painful fire, outer darkness, terrible misery. It's a place of unhappiness. And then he did something that just blows my mind. Then he warned his own disciples, his followers, some of whom eventually would be tortured, beaten, whipped, burned alive, sawn in two. He said to his own followers, he said, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He didn't mince his words. Hell is real for Jesus. So again, the question, then why would a loving God why would a loving God send people to hell? Well, now I'm going to sit down and I'm going to let Pastor Jeff answer the rest of that. No, I want you to listen carefully because this is vitally... I don't want to know what he's thinking. This is vitally important, so I don't want you to miss this. If you go home with forgetting everything else, don't miss this line right here because people ask you that. God doesn't send anyone to hell. Now hold on. God doesn't send anyone to hell. God hates hell. It was designed as punishment for the devil and his rebellious cohorts. Jesus even warned us that hell is such a terrible fate that no personal sacrifice is too small to avoid it. In fact, he said this, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. That is graphic, descriptive language. Why was Jesus saying that? Because he understood something. Clearly, he was indicating to us that hell is never God's choice. It's our choice. It's our actions. It's our consequences. That when we choose to disregard, disobey, drift away from God's plan... We make a choice about what our future will look like. Now, because God is righteous and holy and because His character is righteous and holy, all sin, past, present, and future, will be judged. God's wrath is going to flow out of His love for His creation. He is angry. We've talked about this. He's angry at injustice and greed and self-centeredness and evil because they are destructive. 
And God will not tolerate anything or anyone for destroying the very creation that he loves. He will not tolerate anyone for destroying people that he loves. And yet God in his infinite love, God in his infinite love, made sure in the Old Testament that there was a way, there was an atonement system in place for people to be forgiven. And then he sent his son, Jesus, in the New Testament, and he made sure that he would intercept, intervene, interrupt, do what was ever necessary to stop people from sending themselves to hell. So Jesus would pay the penalty for sin. So here you have this remarkable mystery of the cross where God says, in my holiness and my righteousness and my purity, sin cannot be in my presence, but I will send my son to pay the payment for sin. So even though we have sin nature, Jesus paid so that that nature could be cared for. Even though we make choices of disobedience, Jesus paid that that could be cared for. But the one thing God could never step in and intercept and intervene is personal free will. He goes, you can choose. You can choose. 1 John 4.10, if you're writing your notes, great verse. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and He sent a Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Hell does exist. It is eternal, but it is not inevitable. I love what Ravi Zacharias says. Hell is not the choice of God. It is a choice of a man or a woman who wants to reject the love of God. So much so that Paul would write to Timothy and remind Timothy, when you preach the gospel, Timothy, remind them that God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth that's there in your notes. Peter would write and remind us, he said, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some are understanding slowness, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. Why would a loving God send people to hell? He doesn't. God is working, ceaselessly working by His Spirit, restraining the forces of evil, compelling people to respond to the wonder of the grace of Jesus Christ and saying, recognize the free gift that I give to you. The beauty of it all is Matthew 24, 14, where Jesus says this of the gospel, and this gospel, what is the gospel? This good news that Jesus is the payment for the sins of the world. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as testimony to all nations, And then the end will come. No mind, no mind can comprehend. No heart can grasp the unfathomable love of God for us. People say, well, why would a loving God send people to hell? They completely misread God's truth. God doesn't. It was meant as a place for the devil and his cohorts. God always intended that heaven was the destination and the kingdom of his presence where we would never be separated from the presence of our creator. The greatest gift that God gave us is to be in community with him. And he has done everything in his power to make sure that we have access to that community. But friends, it always comes back to this. It's free will. It's choice. We get to choose our future. God says, I love you too much to interrupt your freedom to choose. So you can choose to separate yourself from my love, my goodness, my life, my completeness. Or you can choose to experience life and live it to the fullest. That's why Jesus talked about when you discover life in him, 
you've discovered the greatest thing you're ever going to know. It's the abundant life. So these are the questions that cause us to wrestle. But it comes back to this one thing. Why is God so angry? Is there a difference between the gods? Why would a loving God send people to hell? When you read it out of context, you misrepresent God. But when you understand who God is, friends, here's the truth. He is a good, good God. And He loves you today. So never, ever, ever forget that. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, this morning, it's in that moment that we recognize that we sing and celebrate the truth of who you are. You are, in fact, a good, good, loving Father. May we live that. May we breathe that. May we share that. And I pray most importantly for anyone who doesn't know that. May today be the day they embrace. Follow the gift of Jesus Christ that you have offered to us. Say yes to him. Have their sins forgiven. And live in the joy of what it is to know you as their father. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.